This interview is part of a podcast series organized by Dr. Kaya Shilda, Associate Professor of International Relations at BU's Party School of Global Studies, and Jean Monnet Chair in European Security and Defense. The podcast series focuses on Europe and the world, and our episode particularly explores EU enlargement, with the hope of shedding some light on the complex dynamics at work today. Our first interview is with Commissioner Janez Lenarcic, the European Commissioner for Crisis Management. Our questions attempt to draw on his practical experience with European enlargement and his perspective on the process. My name is Janez Lenarcic. I'm the European Commissioner for Crisis Management, responsible for humanitarian aid and disaster response. Thank you. As we know, before you became the European Commissioner for Crisis Management, you were the ambassador and permanent representative of the Republic of Slovenia to the EU, and you were also the State Secretary for European and Foreign Affairs within the Slovenian government. Your country, Slovenia, joined the EU during the so-called Big Bang enlargement process in 2004, and you yourself represented Slovenia during the Lisbon Treaty negotiation in 2007. So given all of these experiences you had in so many different roles and institutions, what's your perspective of the EU enlargement? Well, EU enlargement is an unfinished business. That's one thing that one has to say right away. EU, as you know, started as a small group of countries, six. There were six at the beginning. And then gradually over decades it expanded. And the biggest breakthrough was possible to happen after the end of the Cold War, when this division, artificial division of Europe was overcome. Immediately afterwards, uh, we all started uh, accession negotiations uh, and successfully concluded in 2004. For Slovenia, this uh, European perspective, European goal uh, was always uh, the most important thing. But I said, this is still unfinished business. You still have grey spots on the European continent, especially in the Western Balkans. Uh, They all have, all these six countries have the perspective of European membership, uh, but uh, these negotiations for their accession are now taking uh, place, uh, although uh, a bit uh, too slow, I would say. One has to understand that the European project is um, primarily a peace project. That's how it was born. European Union that point called European Community was born on the, on the uh, ruins of the Second World War with the desire to put in place a structure that would forever, forever prevent another war on the European continent. We have to bear that in mind that this is the underlying idea of European project. It's a peace project before anything else. It's also economic project, political project, and so on, but this is the underlying idea, and that's why all European nations, almost all of them, want to be part of this, including my own country, Slovenia. Given the current crisis in Ukraine, um, shortly after Russia's invasion in February, Ukraine applied for membership of the European Union. And in June, the European Council granted Ukraine the status of candidate for EU membership. There's a lot of discussion about this being an example of candidacy fast-tracking, perhaps the first example. What do you anticipate the EU's reaction will be to Ukraine's application? And what different scenarios might there be for Ukraine's accession to the EU? The fact is that uh, the decision to grant Ukraine a candidate status was a political decision. It was also 
geopolitical response by the European Union to imperialist uh, designs by Moscow. Obviously, Moscow tries to um, subordinate Ukraine, or if that doesn't uh, work, at least to grab parts of, it, it, part, parts of its territory. Uh, European Union responded to this by granting Ukraine a candidate status, so as to make it clear that we do see Ukraine as part of the European family, as a sovereign, independent, free country. This is what the Ukrainians want, this is what they deserve, and this is what the European Union is ready to grant them. However, becoming a candidate is only a first step. What follows is years and years of very detailed negotiations aimed at bringing the uh, life, the economy, the uh, administration, and all other aspects of uh, a country in line with European standards. This will be a long process, but nevertheless, the act of granting the candidate status is a very important step and a geopolitical signal, especially to Ukraine itself, that we see it as a member of our own family, and to Moscow, that we are not going to accept their imperialist, imperialist designs. Building on the uh, previous question, uh, previous rounds of enlargement were long processes, and some of which are still ongoing. So, uh, what does a fast-tracking process for Ukraine mean for other candidate states moving forward? And what might this say in regards to President for EU candidates and the enlargement mechanism in a time of crisis? There were uh, fears in the Western Balkans in particular that this um, quick granting of the candidate status to Ukraine would uh, sideline the Western Balkans, uh, who have been negotiating the accession already for uh, quite a while. But I think that these fears are uh, not uh, well-founded. I think the opposite will happen. This, uh, this um, will give another additional impetus to, to uh, Western Balkans' um, European perspective. But fears were there. I remember that one of the leaders of the, one of the Western Balkan country uh, ironically asked, like, who must attack us for us to make a faster progress towards EU, EU membership? Uh, it was a nice, uh, uh, you know, nice uh, prank, but uh, the fact is that, you know, unlike, for instance, NATO and some other uh, integrations, EU is not a simple international organization. You know, EU means a community not only of values, but also of numerous standards in economy, in social affairs, in environment, that if you really want to be a member, you have to fulfill, you have to meet all these standards, and that's not an easy thing. That's why this process takes a long time. In our case, it took uh, more than a decade, uh, and uh, there are also some uh, political considerations, usually mentioned in the sense that uh, there also has to be the absorption capacity of the European Union, meaning that also our common institutions have to be adapted so that they can function normally with enlarged membership. European Union, unlike the United States, for instance, is not one nation. It's the Union of Nations, currently 27 of them, and in some areas there is still a consensus necessary for any decision to be taken, for instance, in foreign policy, in, uh, ta on taxes, and so on. So these uh, institutional matters also need to be looked into 
when the European Union is enlarging. Yeah, I find it very interesting that you mentioned that the EU, unlike other institutions, is a normative power, a normative institution, which means for any states that want to join the EU, they have to meet the norms and standards first. But there's also another voice saying that actually it's not just about the norms, it's also about culture, a common European identity. So what's your perspective of the role that a common European identity plays in this bigger picture? You know, we Europeans have several layers of identity. Mm. One is local or regional identity. You know, you have that even in countries like uh, Montenegro, which is not a very big country, but there you have regional identity of those who live on the coast, the, which is different than the, uh, the identity of those who live in the mountainous part and so on. It's the same in Slovenia, it's the same in many other countries. So regional uh, identity. It's particularly strong, for instance, in Germany, Germany, where regions have a prominent role. The Bavarians feel very much like Bavarians. But this is not the only layer. Then there is a national identity, which is particularly strong because European Union is still a union of nation states. Um, so there you have German identity, Slovenian identity, the national identity is additional layer. But there is also a layer of European identity. We all feel all these things, you know. I personally, I feel uh, my local identity as being from Ljubljana, the capital city of Slovenia. I feel Slovenian, which is my national identity. But in the same vein, I also feel European. So there is such thing as European identity. It is not easy to precisely define it, what it means, but Certainly, it means uh, adherence to norms, adherence to uh, rule of law, uh, adherence to democratic values, mm -hmm. adherence to social welfare. You know, Europeans are proud of having strong social market economy. We are all in favor of market economy, of course, because uh, many of us remember the times when we didn't have a market economy. Uh, before the end of the Cold War, uh, half of Europe lived in um, communist-run uh, uh, countries where there was no market economy, it was plant economy, and we know very well and remember that that did not work. Uh, but at the same time, market economy in European, through European eyes has to be uh, regulated to, to sufficient extent so that it is also social, so that nobody is left behind, so that there is a solidarity in, in, in uh, the functioning of our market. So these are some of the values, there are others, uh, but uh, I would now go back to, to the origins of the whole idea of European Union. The peace on European continent is something that we all feel very much attached to, and that's why all Europe is in deep shock these months uh, in view of what the uh, Russian leadership uh, did, uh, meaning its decision to invade a peaceful democratic neighboring country, Ukraine, and few days earlier, earlier this week, even the decision of the Moscow leadership to escalate their, their, uh, their aggression. This is something that is of grave concern to all Europeans, to all of us. We feel that this is a threat to our continent, it is a threat to everything that EU represents. As you just mentioned, the EU enlargement has brought many benefits to the new member states. Like the 10 new member states joining the EU in 2004, at the moment, I think seven of them were the members of former Eastern Bloc. They had a very different political and economic system, 
So the EU enlargement actually helped them establish democracy and market economy in these countries. But now, however, we're witnessing the so-called democratic backsliding in many of these countries. I would say certainly not many.、Uh, in two, definitely. Uh, but also two is too many.、Uh, it should not happen.、Uh, we are dealing with that.、Uh, you're right. There has been democratic backsliding in、uh, Poland and, in particular, in Hungary. And European Union is developing and using tools to deal with it.、Uh, we will not allow the erosion of fundamental values upon which the whole European project rests.、Uh, so there are procedures in place. Uh, against both Poland and Hungary, there has been a procedure、um, triggered, the so-called Article Seven procedure, which um, which um, represents a pressure on both to change their ways and return back to full democratic standards. In addition, most recently, the European Union adopted a new tool, meaning the rule of law conditionality. It means that whenever there is a threat to rule of law in any member state. The European Union may withhold European funds, which are sizable.、Um, it may withhold partly or、uh, completely those funds in case there is a threat to the rule of law.、Uh, this uh, tool has just been used uh, this year, uh, uh, this month, earlier this month, against Hungary. Hungary now has. A, Uh, up to three months of time to to correct what、uh, doesn't work properly. I hope they will do it.、Uh, but、um, in short, European Union is not uh, idle uh, when it faces this kind of backsliding, which of course、uh, is worrisome and should be reversed. Thank you for addressing some of the mechanisms that the EU uses when there are challenges for enlargement and integration. Uh, what are some of the most frequently misunderstood aspects of the EU enlargement process? Well, first thing is that you know the enlargement is something that that、uh, a candidate country is entitled to. It's not. Enlargement is not entitlement. Enlargement is an option. It's it's a possibility for any European country that one shares all the European values. And two is able is able to operate in the circumstances in the conditions of a single European market,、uh, and、uh, with respect of the rule of law, democratic principles, and so on. There has to be an effort before we discussed the long process of、uh, accession negotiations. That is in place in order to ensure that practices in each member states are. At the level of European standards and values, once you reach that, of course, this is not irreversible, as we can see in some、uh, member states. But it's important to scrutinize not only the situation in uh, each uh, candidate country while it is negotiating for 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 membership, but also once it becomes a member, it has to maintain the respect for. European ways for European norms.、Uh, second thing、uh, with the enlargement is that it only、uh, the, is the belief that it only benefits the candidates and new member states. You know, once you become once you become a new member state, you get a seat at the table, you get a say in decision making, you get、um, access to European、uh, funds. So yeah, this is all true.、Uh, there are a lot of benefits that come with EU membership, but also the EU itself. 
I'm convinced about that very much, benefits from the new members. Uh, first of all, it expands the single European market. Uh, second, it makes European Union stronger because uh, each additional voice adds to the choir of European, of European voices, which uh, the bigger it is, uh, the greater weight the European Union has in the world. Provided, of course, that there is this commonality of values. As long as we maintain commonality of values, we will be strong. If we allow erosion of our common values, this will hamper the, the entire project and uh, we should not allow that to happen. I'm still considering two new candidate countries, Moldova and Ukraine again. Uh, what are the challenges Slovenia experienced during its accession to the Union? Well, uh, we will see how things go. Uh, of course, uh, they will have to adopt a lot of new norms and standards. Uh, this is uh, going to be a long process, I said already. We already know what may be some of the biggest challenges in both countries. First challenge is the pervasive corruption, especially in Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine started to deal with that already, but there is still a lot more to be done. Then the rule of law and the independence of judiciary. A lot will have to be done in this respect. And then, in general, the ability of economies of these countries to operate in a single market where there is a strong competition, when there are high standards, uh, uh, quality standards, safety standards, labor standards, you know, it's not easy to fulfill European standards. That's, that's the reason why this process takes time. Okay, thank you so thank much, you. Commissioner, for your time, and we really enjoy your answer and the talking with you. Thank you for your interest uh, in European affairs. Uh, I hope um, uh, I contributed to understanding that the European project is, um, is a very important project. It's a peace project, it's a project which uh, guarantees peace on the European continent, and its importance is so much more visible now when we have a war on the European continent outside, just outside our Union. This concludes our interview with Commissioner Janez Lenarcic, the European Commissioner for Crisis Management.